Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Alberta pulls the trigger. Alberta's government is committed to protecting Albertans from federal overreach. Premier Danielle Smith invokes Alberta's Sovereignty Act, pushing back against Ottawa's clean electricity regulations. But why is Edmonton choosing this issue now? Also, the news keeps getting worse for the Trudeau Liberals while Conservatives lead in the polls and in fundraising. We'll speak with polls analyst Eric Grenier about the latest numbers. And... As Ontario Liberals wait for results, we'll speak with Ottawa Centre MP Yasser Nakvi. How is he feeling about his chances of becoming the next provincial Liberal leader? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith says she's had enough. Enough of the Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault, who she accuses of flouting the law with Ottawa's clean electricity regulations, which is why she is invoking Alberta's Sovereignty Act to fight them. These measures are not something that we want to do. They are a plan to counteract the absurd, illogical, unscientific, and unconstitutional interference in Alberta's electrical grid by a federal government that simply doesn't care what happens to our province so long as they have a good virtue signaling story to tell their leftist friends and special interests. We would much rather work with Ottawa on meaningful ways to reduce emissions while continuing to generate reliable, affordable electricity. That's better for all Albertans and Canadians. But we refuse to meekly accept actions which are so plainly destructive to Alberta's economy and to the very safety and security of Alberta citizens. We will do whatever we must to stand up and protect the people of this province. We need to make it clear to the courts that we're doing this mindfully. Um, Ultimately, if they proceed on with their plan, this will end up in the court. And we want the the Supreme Court to know that we are very considered in uh, the measures that we're taking, that we have paid attention to the two judgments that have come down at the federal court level, including one at the Supreme Court, um, that we are very mindful and we've read the Constitution. We believe we know what it says, and that we are staying within our lane. We're not trying to do anything that jumps into federal jurisdiction. We're just trying to exercise the power that the founders gave us under the Constitution. So ultimately, when we end up in court, the uh, the, the court will understand our mind through the motion that we're putting forward in the legislature. And finally, we hope that the federal government backs down. I've, I've told them this right from the very beginning. From the very first conversation that I had with our working group, I said, why are you doing this? Because we know it won't work here. You're just putting us in a collision course where we'll be fighting with each other for months. Why don't we just work together on a 2050 target? It's been my consistent position from the very moment that I spoke with uh, Justin Trudeau and the ministers that are at the table with us. So um, I'm hoping that they now understand that we're serious, that we are going to preserve the integrity of our power grid in whatever way we need to so that we can get back to the table and talk about the ways in which we can agree. Well, we will certainly learn more about the invocation of the Sovereignty Act when Alberta's Premier makes an official statement to the legislature tomorrow. But today we did hear from the Federal Environment Minister who says he is willing to be flexible with Alberta. 
We have been uh, working in good faith with the government of Alberta for many months now as part of a working group to explore both the clean electricity regulation as well as the oil and gas cap. And not once in the many meetings that we've had with them did they raise the Sovereignty Act motion, uh, which jeopardized uh, the collaboration that we've had so far. But like the province of Alberta, we agree that we need to, to develop a clean grid that is affordable and, and reliable. Of course we agree on that, uh, because it's the foundation of a prosperous and clean future for all Canadians. The draft regulations that I introduced this summer provide a lot of flexibility for many jurisdictions across the country who still use fossil fuels and more specifically natural gas to continue doing so after 2035. There is no cliff, as Premier Smith has said many times, uh, for, for those jurisdictions using natural gas. But it is true that we want to limit as much as possible the use of fossil fuels as part of our grid in 2035. But it's not a fossil fuel-free grid in 2035. It's a carbon neutral grid. We want to minimize the use of fossil fuels and maximize the use of uh, renewable energies. This seems to be part of a new tradition of the Alberta government to, to ideologically position the, their government on issues of clean electricity, uh, renewable energy. They have put a moratorium, Premier Smith has put a moratorium on place, which is jeopardizing $30 billion worth of investment in the province, putting thousands of, thousands of jobs uh, at risk. With more, we're now joined by Chris Severson-Baker, Executive Director of the Pembina Institute. Chris, thank you for joining us this evening. My pleasure. Now, with the invocation of this act, the Alberta government essentially is making this argument that Ottawa's clean electricity regulations will hurt households and businesses in Alberta by making it more expensive to heat their homes and turn on the lights. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Um, you know, we've done our own analysis to show how Alberta could achieve uh, a net zero grid um, and maintaining affordability and maintaining the similar prices that we're experiencing today by 2035. And it really it boils down to scaling up uh, uh, solar and wind, which is abundant in Alberta, and combining that with natural gas-fired power plants that have carbon capture uh, associated with them, which is also something that Alberta has a lot of experience with and has the right geology to, to undertake. And so we don't agree um, that, that, it, that it's not doable. In fact, we think it's very achievable and it's, a, it's what Alberta should be striving to do Striving to do, although Alberta, in also making the argument uh, from from the Danielle Smith, the government, they, they essentially say that you know Alberta already has reduced emissions by more than fifty percent in the last eighteen years, and that's because the province transitioned, as you know, away from coal powered plants to natural gas plants. And it essentially, it seems that they want to have credit for that without having to move towards the twenty thirty five target. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I think. A clean grid is the backbone of a net zero economy, and uh, all of our uh, competitors are, are very well aware of this. The United States has a similar target as Canada. The EU has a similar target. And frankly, um, international uh, investors and, and companies are looking for places in the world to set up their operations and, and looking for places where they can get energy and materials, you know, essentially, you know, the, the so-called supply chain for the for the products that they want to build from places that have clean electricity because they have commitments to achieve net zero 
in the future. And so it's really not in our, uh, it's not an advantage for any jurisdiction to, uh, to try to hang on to, um, a fossil fuel based, uh, uh, grid. Like so if we want to decarbonize houses, cars, and even the oil and gas industry in Alberta, we need a clean grid to do that. Okay, listen, I'm going to get into the, the impact of not uh, turning towards a net zero grid uh, sooner rather than later. But, you know, th- of course, we also know that the province uh, did uh, create this moratorium on uh, more clean energy sources like wind and solar. What's your reasoning behind that? Why do you think they did that? Uh, I Honestly, I, I, I think that the... But the decision to put a pause on uh, renewable energy development in Alberta on approvals for new projects uh, was just a, simply a bad decision. And it it really has had a negative impact on how the investment community is looking at Alberta, not just in the renewable energy sector space, but across the energy sector. And, and, and um, expanding, you know, invoking the Sovereignty Act, which is essentially saying, you know, we're going to have a different set of rules in Alberta than what the federal government is, uh, is putting in place for the rest of the country. It's going to create an enormous amount of uncertainty and just really extend the harm that that moratorium had on 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 a part of the energy system to the whole energy sector in Alberta. So why do you think this is being done then? Why do you think they're invoking the act right now? Uh, more political than, than than policy front, do you think? Well, you know, it, it really does. I mean, we've, we've, we've had some, some months of, of the, the new UCP government in Alberta, and it is very much looking like uh, they're very committed to fighting uh, with Ottawa, uh, asserting their, you know, sort of more in- independence from the federal government and less interested in attracting investment to the province, um, less interested in, in sort of creating stability uh ensuring that there's jobs uh, and certainly much more interested in doing in fighting with ottawa than implementing their own climate plan so we've heard a lot about daniel smith's commitment to achieving net zero by 2050 but there's been absolutely no policies uh, put in place or even any discussion about how alberta would start to make uh, strides towards that and so you know i think you know a lot of albertans should be very concerned about what, what impact this is going to have on the economy should be concerned. What's your your take of it, though? Are are Albertans on side with Danielle Smith on this one? I think when people uh, went to the polls, you know, they were very concerned about the economy. They were very concerned about future prosperity. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people who typically voted conservative in the past voted conservative again because they associate the the conservative brand with um, being strong on the economy. But we really haven't seen. Uh, behavior that's consistent with how provinces tend to be uh, uh, governed in the past. You know, I, I, no government has ever put a pause on development on, in the energy industry because there was a need to address, you know, some concerns with the pace of scale of development. That just simply has never happened. There's always been a process that's resolved those concerns while development continues to occur. And that's really, I mean, that's sort of taken for granted by uh, companies that operate in Alberta and investors up until this year. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the the economic impact. If, if you will, can you dig down deeper into that one? Because I do wonder, what is the danger if Alberta focuses on the original goal of net zero by 2050 rather than the more ambitious goal of 2035? Well, any, you know, companies are looking at making very large scale investments uh, in uh, in power generation, in decarbonizing industrial operations and decarbonizing oil and gas operations right now. 
Um, you know, they're, they're, some of them are waiting for the rules to be, uh, to become clear. Um, and they're, and they're at the same time, they're trying to, uh, line up supporters and, uh, you know, in the investment community to advance those projects. And it becomes extremely difficult to do that if you cannot explain to the, those investors what the rules of the game are going to be. So how, you know, a lot of these projects are in the billion dollar sort of price tag range. You, you, you just cannot move ahead with a billion dollar investment if, if you don't know, uh, what the, what the, uh, what the rules of the game are going to be, which uh, set of regulations are going to apply, whether or not you're going to be able to uh, access the federal government's investment tax credit or not, what the carbon price is going to be in the future. Like these are all things that are essential to understand before you make those investments. And, and other jurisdictions are we're seeing announcements of those types, the, those scales of investment because the the, the, the provincial uh policies are clear and it and it's clear that they are consistent with what the federal government is rolling out. Chris Severson Baker, really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. Both sides in the Israel-Hamas conflict have agreed to extend their ceasefire by two days. This was supposed to be the final day of a four-day truce in the fighting. Israel's military says 11 Hamas-held hostages were released today, while Israeli officials say the country is willing to extend the pause in fighting by one day for every 10 additional hostages Hamas releases. A new report from Canada's housing advocate says all levels of government have violated the human rights of Inuit peoples by failing to provide them with proper housing. Marie-José Houle's findings are based on her trip to see housing conditions in Nunavut and Labrador firsthand last year. Houle says some Inuit lacked water, sanitation or reliable access to heat or energy to warm their homes. During my visits, I saw the distress being experienced by people who are unhoused and living in precarious and unfit housing circumstances. And this takes a serious toll on people's physical, mental and emotional health. Poole's report presents several recommendations to the government, including calling on Ottawa to shift the responsibility for Inuit housing to Inuit governments. She also wants all levels of government to recognize housing as a human right. And finally tonight, members of the Ontario Liberal Party voted over the weekend to select their next leader. And organizers say they saw a record number of registered voters with more than 100,000 people eligible to cast a ballot, up from 44,000 in the last leadership contest. Four candidates are in the running to lead the Ontario Liberal Party. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie, Federal Liberal MPs Yasser Nakvi and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and Ontario MPP Ted Chu. The ballots will be hand-counted on December the 2nd, and the winner will be announced the same day. Well, joining us now is Yasser Nak, the Liberal Member of Parliament for the riding of Ottawa Centre, and one of four people vying to be the next leader of the Provincial Liberal Party. Mr. Nakvi, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. So the, the ballots have been cast. The, yes. the results will be <laughs> unveiled next Saturday. But in the interim, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling really good. You know, we ha we had a really good campaign. I got to travel this really beautiful, big, and diverse province multiple times. I met a lot of new people. Um, we uh, grew our party. We are over 100,000 people as members of the Ontario Liberal Party. We're the largest political party in Ontario. 
perhaps one of the largest in Canada um, at the moment. And thousands of people came out to vote over the weekend um, for four good candidates. Everyone worked really, really hard. And now we'll know who becomes the leader. Okay, now it has been said through the course of this uh, Ontario leadership campaign, and I know you push back on it, that this was Bonnie Crombie's to lose. Why do you push back on that? Well, nobody is winning uh, this leadership on the first ballot. I think that's it's really clear because it was a really competitive race, Michael. I, I think there was this perception by the media that somehow one candidate will win this uh, right away. I, I really don't see it. I think the competitive nature of it and the amount of hustle that was put in by all four candidates, initially five, now four candidates has been remarkable. All of us signed up, a lot of members in every part of, of the province. In my campaign, we signed up uh, over 31,000 people as, as, as members, and they were really motivated, and, and a lot of them came out to vote uh, over the weekend. But at the same time, Bonnie Crombie, she, she did lead in fundraising of the four candidates. And, and when I say lead, lead by a very large margin of everybody else. But money doesn't elect leaders. Uh, people do. And in the end of the day, they are going to raise. We ran a fully funded uh, campaign. I'm really proud of the fundraising we have done up to now. Uh, money came from grassroots liberals. Uh, people give me $5, $10, $100. Um, you know, this is what it will take to build our parties, not people with big money. Uh, it's everyday Ontarians supporting our party and supporting our candidates. Um, and that was the f- big focus of my campaign is how uh, myself as a leader is going to transform our party, make, it, make sure that we are, we're um, strong in every riding, that we are competitive in every region before the next election. Yeah, and transform our party. And for people who don't follow Ontario politics, it's because you went from government to the party in third place without even official status right now. So Yeah, there's a lot of hard work ahead of us. A lot of hard work a- ahead of you. What are you hearing then from the people who did sign up for membership? Because if you say it's the largest political party right now, what are they saying that they want to see that's not being met by the current uh, Progressive Conservative Party of Doug Ford? So people are struggling in this province. I mean, I can tell you so many stories, uh, Michael, of that people have shared with me as I traveled across our province from northern Ontario to rural southwest to major urban cities like greater Toronto area and, and Ottawa. People are struggling to find family doctors and nurses. Over two and a half million Ontarians do not have access to a family doctor, and that number is growing. Kids struggling in overcrowded classrooms. Number of kindergarten teachers I met who told them they have 35, 36, 37, four and five-year-olds in their, in their classrooms. Or young people working two or three jobs and still struggling to buy groceries or pay, pay rent. And so Doug Ford has really failed Ontarians and there is no plan inside to help these individuals. What people are looking from the Ontario Liberal Party is practical solutions that is going to make their lives easier to live. And that's exactly what I talked about in this campaign, is how are we going to recruit more family doctors and nurses? How are we going to make sure that internationally trained doctors and nurses get licensed as quickly as possible in Ontario so they can serve in northern Ontario or rural Ontario? How are we going to um, bring meaningful uh, caps on class sizes so the kids can get education? How are we going to recruit uh, special education instructors so that kids with special needs can get good education. These are real tangible issues that provincial government is responsible for. 
Doug Ford has failed them, and here's an opportunity for Ontario Liberal Party to be its true self, which is champion practical ideas that will make people's lives easier to live. Okay, so so issues to champion, as you say, but first we need to see who wins the ballot next Saturday. But, you know, you and Nate Erskine-Smith, and perhaps not surprisingly, you're both Liberal members of Parliament, you struck a deal. You, you, you turned to the people that you think you have support from, and you said to them, choose either one of us as your second choice. What is it about Bonnie Crombie that you're trying to block? Well, so, uh, so one of the big concerns about me was um, about values, right? And the reason why Nate and I found a lot of alignment during the course of this campaign is that we share a lot of those values. When it comes to how do we transform our party, what it will take to revitalize it at a grassroots level, how do we bring trust and accountability back at Queen's Park? What kind of steps we need to take when it comes to reforming lobbying, when it comes to reforming uh, how money is, is raised um, in, in Ontario? And lastly is what are those liberal values when it comes to fighting, uh, making sure healthcare is there in a public uh, sphere, public education, and fighting climate change? So there was alignment in that. I talked about my concerns um, with Mayor Crombie's political instincts, her political style and political Which uh, you would friends. describe as what? Well, I think, I think issues are, let's take Greenbelt, for example. You know, initially she said that she's open to, to swap, land swaps on, on Greenbelt. Eventually she changed her mind when there was a pushback, but I think it's indicative of, of political instinct. I had concerns about when she said that spending money on health care and child care and dental care is too left of is too left and we need to govern from right of center. That, in my view, is not liberal values. We're a party of practical ideas that really actually focuses on helping people and making their lives easier to live. So, I, you know, leadership races are about drawing contrast, making sure that we get the good vetting that we all get so people can make uh, decisions. In the end of the day, the votes have been cast. I will respect the decision that is made by the, the political parties. I'm hopeful that I'm successful. If I'm not, I'm going to be standing shoulder to shoulder with my new leader and make sure that we defeat Doug Ford in 2026. So you will be leaving federal politics then, win or lose? Well, I have, I've made that commitment. You know, I'm really concerned about the direction the province is, is, is going. And I've said my mission is to defeat Doug Ford in 2026. And in whatever role, I can help rebuild the Ontario Liberal Party and, and ensure that in 2026, we've got a progressive, principled, liberal government in Ontario. I'm going to work very hard towards that. Yes, Renakvi, we're watching the results along with you. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. We're now nearing the end of the parliamentary calendar with only three sitting weeks left in 2023. And for the Liberals, it is ending with a whimper, down to the mid-20s in popular support, with the opposition Conservatives well in the lead. With more, we're now joined by polls analyst Eric Grenier, the man behind the writ. Hello, Eric. Hello. So let's begin with the numbers. Where do they sit right now? Well, right now in the polls, uh, we have seen that the Conservatives have been holding at around the 40% mark that we've now started to see really since the return of, uh, of Parliament in September. And the Liberals are now usually about 15 points back, somewhere in the mid-20s at around 25%, uh, followed by the New Democrats, who still are around the 19, 20% mark that they've been at for the last few years. So we did see a lot of change earlier in the year, uh, but over the last few months, it has been holding in what might become the new normal at this 40% for the Conservatives, 25% for the Liberals. Okay, might be the, the new normal. Uh, compare that with the begin, beginning of the year. As you said, we, we, we were watching this trend line since January, but the Liberals uh, are certainly worse off now than they were in January. 
Yeah, absolutely. When we were in January, things weren't really all that different from where they were in the 2021 election. The Conservatives were usually polling at around 34, 35 percent. Pierre Poiliev had been leader for a few months, but it hadn't really seemed to move the numbers very much. Uh, the Liberals were at usually 31, 32, more or less where they were in the last election, and the NDP, notably, still at the 19, 20% that they are now. So most of the change that we've seen has been between the Conservatives and the Liberals. When you're actually looking at um, you know, how people voted in the past elections, you do see that the Liberals have lost some support to the New Democrats, but the NDP has lost some support to the Conservatives as well. But the net effect is that it's largely that the Conservatives have picked up five, six points, and the Liberals have dropped five or six points. Okay, and you know what's interesting is that this is the time of year as well as as well when people start focusing on fundraising numbers, and when you look at that, they really do seem to be backing up what we're seeing in the popular polls. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the end of the year is always the best time for fundraising because it's the closest time for your tax credit will be coming uh, when you file your returns in the spring. Uh, but so far, the Conservatives have already been having a great fundraising year. They've raised over $23 million since the beginning of the year. The Liberals are much further back at under $10 million. Uh, so there's about a $13.5 million gap between the Liberals and the Conservatives. And that is only the first nine months of the year. Uh, expecting that if those trends continue, that this will probably be a, a record-setting year for the Conservatives, both in terms of overall fundraising and their lead over the Liberals. So it is following in the popular vote, but we should also point out that when the Liberals won uh, you know, in 2015 or 2019, the Conservatives were still able to raise a lot of money. So money doesn't necessarily buy you votes, but it certainly can help you buy quite a few, just not necessarily an election. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Now, we are getting word that the NDP is uh, willing to extend the timeline for a pharmacare deal with the government. Uh, of course, pharmacare, this key element of the NDP supply and confidence agreement with the Liberals. When you look at the NDP polling numbers and their fundraising numbers, what does that tell us might even suggest as to why uh, the party is willing to give the Liberals a bit more time when it comes to pharmacare? Well, the NDP doesn't look like it is in a good position for an election. It's fundraising is not awful from a, an NDP's perspective. You know, they're raising it about uh, over $4 million so far this year, but they do not have a lot of extra cash. Uh, so the fundraising does not suggest that the, uh, the NDP is able to build up a war chest over the last few months. And when you look at the polls, again, they haven't really moved at all. The fact that the Liberals have dropped so much and the NDP hasn't really picked anything up overall, when you're looking at, uh, you know, the numbers across the country, uh, does not put the NDP in a good position to win a lot more seats. Because in a lot of the areas where the Liberals have dropped back and the NDP might seem more competitive with them, uh, you know, at the provincial level, the Conservatives have gained. And so the NDP might be able to trade off some gains from the Liberals for some losses to the Conservatives. Uh, but there's very little chance, based on where the numbers are right now, that the NDP would actually come out ahead if an election were held today. Okay. Uh, now, the Liberals uh, have brought in a new communications director, getting back to the, to the challenges they face. So here is a new communications director. But is it too late to turn numbers around for the government? Or is there still a chance that a change in, in some type of strategy might still be beneficial for the party? Well, I suppose it would not be, uh, based on where things have been going for the last little while, a good idea just to continue. Uh, so a change can't hurt the Liberals based on how uh, badly things have been over the last little while. But I think that the biggest issue for the Liberals is that a lot of the things that could see them get reelected in the next election are much bigger, much larger issues based around whether the economy improves, whether interest rates go down, whether Pierre Polyev can continue to have a bad week and bad months like he did last week. Those are things that are largely out of the Liberals' control. Tinkering around the edges might help, but uh, really they need some 
they need some much bigger uh, you know, bounces to go their way over the next uh, year or two, depending on how long uh, this parliament will last. Okay. Well, we are watching. Uh, Eric Grenier, always good to chat with you. Thank you for that. All right. Thanks. Well, that is our program for this Monday evening. But before we leave, we do want to send out a special message to Conservative MP Raquel Danko. On Saturday, she took to social media to announce the birth of her daughter, Elizabeth Eden Gursky Danko, born at 8 46 p.m. on November the 20th. Ms. Danko says both baby and mama are healthy and doing well. And we here at CPAC just wanted to say congratulations. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow. We'll see you then. But up next, Esteve Jean avec l'essentiel.